all, my name is Amanda Silva and I'm a student project manager at the Clark Firm for Contemporary Issues here at Dickinson College. I am joined by Nina Banks from Bucknell University. Professor Banks is on campus giving a talk titled Sadie Alexander and the Use of Federal Job Guarantees to Address Racial Discrimination in Employment. Professor Banks, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Thank you, Amanda. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So my first question is, how did you first hear of Sadie Alexander, and what made you decide to research her work? I first heard about Sadie Alexander when I was a graduate student studying economics. A friend of mine who was a history graduate student showed me an entry in a book on black women in America, and it was on Sadie Alexander. And that was the first time that I heard about her, and I was really surprised because I did not know that there was a woman who had received a doctorate degree in economics in 1921. So that was interesting, but what really piqued my interest in her was a number of years later, it was probably around 1999 or so, I was teaching a course on African-American feminist thought and there was, there was an, we used, I was co-teaching it, and we used an anthology called, I think, Words of Fire. And there was a piece in it that Sadie Alexander wrote in 1930, and it was published in Opportunity Magazine by the Urban League, the National Urban League. And this piece was remarkable because it really anticipated a lot of arguments that feminist economist had made when I was in graduate school. Um, and then a couple of years later, I read an analysis by Julianne Malveaux, who is an economist who had researched Sadie Alexander's dissertation. And based on the quality of her dissertation, um, Malveaux argue that it was really very much a, a tragic loss to the economics discipline in not having this remarkable um, economist as part of our ranks. And so it was really the combination of, of the opportunity piece that Sadie Alexander had written and Julianne Malveaux's analysis that really encouraged me to go to the University of Pennsylvania where Sadie Alexander's records are stored in order to see if I could find anything that suggests that she may have continued to think about economics during her lifetime. I didn't expect to find much. And um, when I went there, what I found is that, in fact, she had been engaged with economic issues um, concerning the status of African Americans over her lifetime. And what do you think really contributed to this anonymity? Oh, that is a really complex and a really interesting question. I think that there were probably a number of factors. One factor certainly is the fact that Sadie Alexander was African-American, an African-American woman, and so she did not have employment as an economist. She became a lawyer instead when she wasn't able to get a job as an economist. And so I think that when attention was focused on her, it was primarily focused on her as a, as a civil rights lawyer. And so I think that there was a tendency to overlook the economic content of what she was saying. Um, and when I say a tendency to overlook, here I'm talking about the black press, because the black press 
has really done a remarkable job of documenting and preserving African-American history. And so the black press focused on Sadie Alexander's accomplishments with respect to civil rights, especially when she served on the Truman Committee mm -hmm. in 1947. But I think that the black press wasn't really attuned to the economic part of, of what she was saying, and most of that came through in speeches that she was giving primarily to black audiences. And so I, the, you know, when I've looked at some of her newspaper clippings, I will see, for example, that the black press captured a social event, a birthday party that she had for a daughter, and you know, there was not discussion, for example, of a talk that she gave to black organizations such as the Elks that, that focused on economic issues. I think that's part of it. But the, I think the other part of it is that in the 1930s and 40s, I think that there wasn't a discussion about economic issues to the extent that there is today. And then, of course, what she was doing would have been invisible or unseen to many white Americans because she was a black American. So that's part of, I think, why, she, you know, what she said as an African American woman was also um, in many ways lost to history. I realized that she didn't really leave a book or she didn't write anything like that. Most of her work seems to come from like speeches or what people heard her say or what the University of Pennsylvania like compiled after she died. And I know there was a bunch of like letters and diaries that you know she left behind that is archived at Kingtown as well. Her life was incredibly well documented and I believe when we when I did the book launch in June, the book launch took took place on the 100th anniversary to the day um, of when she received her doctorate degree in economics from the University of Pennsylvania. Three generations of her family participated in that momentous event. And I believe her grandson, Ray Brown, Raymond Brown, made the comment that that both of his grandparents knew that what they were doing was very important, and so they documented their, their life, their lives. Sadie Alexander's life was extraordinarily well documented. The collection of her papers it, it is over, over 81 boxes um, of files, and they cover a range of information in terms of her extensive civic engagement, it includes her personal letters. It includes um, files from her businesses. And everything was very well documented. There are scrapbooks from when she was in, you know, when she was a young woman um, and in college as a graduate student. So there was an, a, you know, a huge amount of information. And part of the challenge of going through the archival records was to try to figure out, where do I look? If I'm trying to find evidence that Sadie Alexander continued to have an engagement with economic issues, where do I look? And I had done archival work for my own dissertation, which is not typical in economics. And so I, you know, I was used to doing archival research. And so when I went to the University of Pennsylvania to, to you know, initiate this process, that was in 2003, 
one of the places where I decided to look right away was her speeches, because I assumed that if I could find economic content, that certainly that's where it would be. I didn't expect to find much, but the speeches are primarily about economic issues, and they range from the 1920s until the 1970s. Part of the other reason why I think that the economic content of some of the speeches would have been overlooked is that I think for a number of years when people tend, people who are not economists tend to think about economics, they think about issues that are tied to money and banking um, and not a range of issues that constitute economic analysis. So for me, the initial question wasn't just was she thinking about economic issues, but really how does a black woman in the 1930s with young children manage to have a, um, a very demanding and active career as an attorney and also raise children. That, for me, was the big issue. But that's an economic issue to me, but there are certainly, maybe two generations ago or a generation ago, people would not have thought about that as an economic issue. So I think that's part of it as well, is that, you know, that that me, as a feminist economist, reading through her files and as somebody who also had a background in African-American history, that I brought a particular lens to it that I was able to see right away, but, you know, this is economic. You mentioned that you were, like, a feminist economist. What, what does that entail, and how does that, like, differ from the, the study of economists? Ooh, so feminism... And I'm going to use a definition from feminist scholar Aida Hurtado, who says that feminism is a theory of liberation of all people that uses gender as a focal point. So feminism is critical analysis. It's, it's looking at gender, and I look at it through an intersectional standpoint. So it's, it's a critical analysis of, of gender as it interacts with other categories and other systems of oppression um, for the purpose of liberation. How does that differ from mainstream economics? Let me start by saying that there's a range of approaches within feminist economics. So, so there are mainstream feminist economists on one end of the spectrum, and then on the other end, there are radical feminist economists um, who are Marxist and socialist, um, perhaps anarchists, for example. Mainstream economists, on the other hand, <laughs> how do I describe the mainstream compared to neo? To mainstream is neoclassical economics and how that differs. Mainstream economics tends to um, assume that there is a central economic character, economic man, and so they are able to posit universal laws of behavior that apply you know, pretty much all over time and in various places. And this economic man knows his preferences and he's not shaped by outside forces, by, you know, by families. The focus is on the individual. And feminist economics is not, is not like that at all. I mean, we assume that history matters, 
that people are shaped by institutions, by social arrangements. So we look at a different set of questions, I think, and we um, use different assumptions than mainstream economists do. Mainstream economics is often driven by utility theory and, and preferences and things of that nature, I, and I don't do any of that. And would you say that Dr. Alexander really embodied the ideals of the feminist economist? You've got some really great questions, Amanda. Did she, does she uh, yes, in the sense that feminism is about the liberation of all people using gender as um, a focal point. What I would say is that she was primarily focused on the liberation of African Americans. Occasionally, she talked about gender, not often in terms of her economics. And so when she talked about the status of black women, for example, she compared the situation of black women who were dealing with both gen you know, the gender and racial oppression and compared their status to that of white women, for example, and white men. You know, but I, I think the other thing to think about is that in the 1920s and 30s when Sadie Alexander was talking about black women, um, and, and again, she didn't focus main, most of her attention on black women, but when she did talk about black women, black feminists of that era were always thinking about the status of black women in the context of the black community. I don't know if that answers your question or not. So it's different from, you know, the. I think it's a little bit different from the way in which some people engage feminist analysis today, which is to really um, focus primarily on women, which is what I do, for example. Sadie Alexander didn't do that, but when she did focus on women, right, it was from a very progressive standpoint in terms of um, the need for women to be able to, the need for black women to be able to um, have access to sufficient resources so that they could live meaningful lives. She lamented the fact that black women were relegated to domestic service and agriculture because she believed that black women um, you know, wanted to be able, as other people did, wanted to be able to have access to other jobs. Um, and so she thought that black women were not as productively employed as they could have been. Um, so it was always about having greater rights but you know it's a tricky issue, right? When we talk about her, her, her focus on black women, because in the political sphere, she thinks that black women are really very powerful agents of social change. And so, when it came to politics and agency, she's really propping up the role of black women. She notes that black women play a prominent role in in our community, and that black women are some of the best leaders in the world. Um, which is, of course, an observation that we've been making in the United States over the past few years. So from a political standpoint, there was an emphasis that she placed on black women. But when it came to the economy, um, it was focused more on uh, the black masses, people who were very much at the bottom of the occupational hierarchy. That was her concern. Other than that, do you think that Dr. some of the points that you know Dr. Alexander 
race during her time about black liberation. Do you think it still applies to the today's economy and in what ways and how? Sure, I think, yes, I do. And I think that there are a number of areas that still relate. And so in, when it comes to the economy, Sadie Alexander focused on the persistence of discrimination by employers against black workers. In the 1930s, she was the, um, you know, the chair of a human rights commission in Philadelphia, and they issued a statement about um, employment. And this was 1963, and in the statement they called for affirmative action in employment for black workers because of this long history of racial exclusion. Now that was two years before President Johnson issued executive, the executive order that called for affirmative action. And what is really interesting to me about that um, statement that the, this Human Rights Commission issued is that they were saying, in other words, Sadie Alexander was saying, since she was the chairperson of it, what she was saying is that discrimination against black workers is the norm. It is the default. And so they said that if there is not affirmative action for black workers, then it is by default discrimination. And I think that's really powerful, right? A really powerful way of thinking about what is happening um, to black workers. It's a recognition that black workers are always subject to racial discrimination. And so given that, we have to take steps to deal with it, to address it. If steps are not taken to address it, then discrimination persists. So I think that that still very much relates. Um, and because of that, her ideas on how to address unemployment and the persistence of labor market discrimination through government federal job guarantees, I think, is absolutely still very critical because African Americans continue to have unemployment rates that are twice as high as the unemployment rates for white Americans. And whether the economy is doing well or doing poorly. So African Americans tend to live with unemployment levels that are comparable to um, recessionary levels of unemployment. It creates a great deal of economic hardship for African Americans who experience it and for extended families as well. And it, of course it creates hardship for um, African Americans who live in areas where there are high levels of unemployment. So absolutely I think that her, her um, arguments in terms of the economy are still very much applicable. She was very critical of New Deal policies that excluded the major categories where black workers worked agriculture and domestic service. And we see today that there are still areas where people in agriculture, in farming, and in domestic service still don't have all of the labor protections that other workers have in other occupations. So that remains. And then I would say that the other, one of the other areas where I've been thinking a lot about her analysis is over the discussion of critical race theory. Sadie Alexander said that we need to have an accurate history of African Americans taught in our schools, that that should be a critical part of our curriculum that all children have, 
so that all children, not just black children, but white children, can understand the tremendous contributions that African Americans have made to this nation culturally, um, you know, in terms of the arts, for example, music, um, economically. She believed that African Americans had contributed more to this land than any other racial group in proportion to our numbers, and politically, because African Americans have always pressed for more democratic rights, and to the extent that we have pushed the nation to become more democratic, other groups have also benefited. So Sadie Alexander believed that having a curriculum that um, enabled students to learn this history would help to foster increased awareness, but also increased acceptance. And so when I read through her speeches, her speeches are not just her challenge to inequities, but her speeches also represent a history of the economic status of African Americans through through various changes in our history, right? Over many decades, the Great Migration and World War I, um, you know, Great Depression and World War II, post-war era, there's the McCarthy era, and then of course into the, the 1960s civil rights movement, you know, the era of concentrated poverty um, and, and protest against racial injustice. And so her speeches chronicle the economic and political history of African Americans over this period of time. She documents injustices against African Americans that are systemic. She documents political injustices. She documents injustices tied to over-policing and police brutality economic injustices, injustices against black women, right? health injustices, housing injustices. It's systemic oppression. And so I think about that in the context of critical race theory because they don't want this history to be taught. And Sadie Alexander's analysis is all about the ways in which systemic oppression keeps African Americans down People who are opposed to teaching critical race theory would have a hard time, I think, arguing against someone like Sadia Alexander who was observing these events, these forms of structural oppression unfold as she was writing about them. What do you think has been like your most fulfilling part of this project, like, the most exciting thing that you have done through this? I think that the most fulfilling part is the gratification of finally um, having her intellectual thought restored. That's been the most gratifying part of it, that along the way um, when I published articles on her economic thought, what I knew is that it was piecemeal, that I couldn't give adequate justice to her economic thought, the breadth of her brilliance, and she was brilliant. And so for me, the most, the grati most gratifying part is to finally have a volume that represents her body of thought, and her speeches are her most important body of thought, to have a volume of her body of thought that economists and political theorists and historians can now think about. Yeah, it's so important, especially in this time period that we're living in. Of, we've had a lot of firsts 
And so like the vice president and a bunch of other people in higher, higher education and also in political places, it's just really nice to know to know their history and to let other people also know their history as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, thank you, Dr. Banks. This was amazing. This concludes our interview. And I just want to say thank you so much for being at Dickinson and to um, agreeing to come to give this talk today. Thank you, Amanda. I'm very happy that you asked me to talk about Sadie Alexander. Thank you for all of your incredible efforts.